I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today I'm speaking with Lance Wheeler, an artist whose work sits at the intersection of storytelling and technology. The most recent iteration of his piece, Where There's Smoke, an immersive documentary installation, for lack of a better description, incorporates generative NFTs on Solana. This episode is unlike anything we've done here before on Validated. Our conversation is not just about blockchain and art. It's about the influence of technology on art more broadly and that influence on culture. Since launching the show back in January, we've talked to plenty of developers building technologies behind NFTs, as well as the applications that support them. So I thought it was time we hear from an actual artist using this technology for human expression. Technology has dictated the form and function of storytelling for literally all of human history. The paintbrush, the printing press, the camera, social media, all of these are fundamentally technologies. And each of them has afforded humans new ways of telling and even distributing their stories. We discuss how Web3 fits into this historical picture, and if there's anything truly new that blockchain brings to the table here. Lance speculates on how existing IP models may evolve to resemble more open systems, and what it means for decentralization to be an aesthetic inspiration in his work. In the mainstream public imagination, crypto is still a dirty word. In Lance's view, artists who create emotionally resonant experiences that incorporate crypto can help destigmatize the space. IRL works like Where There's Smoke can be enjoyed by DGENs and grandmothers alike. Lance is also a professor, and his agenda of destigmatizing plays a role in his classrooms too. Whether it's crypto, AI, or any new technology, Lance wants his students and the rest of the world to view technology as a tool that enables artists to push the limits of what's possible. If you think more blockchain-adjacent episodes like this would be interesting, let us know at validated.solana.org. Let's jump in. Lance, welcome to Validated. Oh, thanks. Nice to be here. There's a lot of conversations that we do on the show that I'm excited to have because they dive into, you know, futures of blockchain decentralization and lots of sort of theories of what this whole new space of technology could look like. But I am particularly excited to talk to you today because I think the way you think about things is probably fairly similar to the way I think about things. So I, I kind of want to start with something that isn't particularly blockchain related at all, which is this sort of intersection of storytelling, new media, and new sort of technologies and mediums. Could you just give us a little bit of overview of what you've kind of been doing for the last 20 years? Sure. Uh, I'll try to consolidate that for you. I'm a storyteller by trade. Uh, I've been working in film and television games. Uh, I do a lot of large-scale installations. And I had started as a, kind of a journeyman. I, I worked my way through commercial production, documentaries, feature films, and then at a certain point became like a camera operator, a director, a producer. And back in web 1.0, I, uh, I was at Penn Station after shooting a music video all night and I was flipping through a magazine and I saw an ad for uh, a card, a piece of hardware that you could put into a computer that would allow you to edit. And I thought it blew my mind. I was like, man, I have to get this. I have to figure out how to edit. Cause at that time, the only place you could edit was you know paying for an expensive post-production facility so i um went off read everything that i could along with my colleague stefan avalos and we ended up making building our own computers and ended up making the first all digital release of a motion picture made a, a desktop feature film so uh, in many ways it was a precursor to the moment that we find ourselves in with web 3 and this idea of democratizing the the making and distribution of the work. And so we actually ended up making this little movie called The Last Broadcast for like 900 bucks, um, you know, when we totaled all the receipts. Uh, and then through self-distribution efforts, went on to gross over like $5.4 million with it and innovated the protocol for digital cinema in the process. You know, there was a beautiful thing where we were so naive, we didn't know what we couldn't do. So there's a lot that's very analogous to the moment that we find ourselves in now uh, to what we were doing way back then. And then that kind of just sent me on a path where I became more and more interested in kind of uh, storytelling, but storytelling across the whole spectrum. It wasn't just storytelling in terms of what I was writing on the page or what was on the screen. It was the narrative that surrounded the whole making of what the work was and finding a way for the work to make it to an audience and trying to reduce some of the 
gatekeepers that existed at that time. Yeah, you know, it's funny you talk about that intersection of what technology enables you to do and what the gatekeepers sort of are acting to prevent people from doing. It's funny because there was this period of time in the 80s where something happened and film production got astronomically cheaper. And you saw all these sort of weird, strange movies that are now sort of like that cult classic of like, you know, Groundhog Day and Ferris Bueller's Day Off probably never should have been greenlit, but someone did because the cost of production was cheap enough. And then you saw a very similar thing, kind of what you're talking about, the advent of digital, where like even everything from like Blair Witch Project to other types of, of films that just wouldn't have been made if it weren't for this technology platform change um, kind of occurred. It, it, it's interesting to think about that in a relationship where now we're in this era of digital where it feels like the gatekeepers are reasserting themselves as almost the, the, the production quality technology gets higher and higher again. It's kind of this funny, like, you push the boulder up the hill and then you have to push it, and then you know, it gets rolled back down, you have to push it back up again every time there's this new platform change. Yeah, well, at the same time, you have this real amazing kind of friction that you haven't had previously, which is due to generative technologies like artificial intelligence. You know, this idea that you can go text to image or text to video or video to video is radically uh, disrupting the industry. And uh, it's at the center right now of uh, two strikes, the SAG and WGA strike, Writers Guild strike. And it's interesting yeah. to kind of think about, you know, in some ways I, I, I think about generative AI and I think about some of the challenges that they're, they're facing and, and the way that, um, you know, rightfully so want to figure out how to give attribution. If you look at where music has gone in terms of music usually leads film, right? The right. file sizes are smaller. So if you look at the trajectory there in terms of, you know, how, um, you know, it currently sits with uh, services like something like Spotify, for instance, doesn't pay any residuals out to the to the creators, barely any, right? And the way that they're making their right. money tends to be through live. So um, it's interesting to think about the way the blockchain could come in and and be uh, a really interesting way to uh, provide attribution to creators uh, to transfer and get away from a lot of the pain points that currently exist. Uh, the accounting practices of the entertainment industry are horrible you know, in comparison yes. to many other industries. So having transparency like you get on chain would be a, a huge step up. So this idea that um, in one part, production costs have dropped, there's another wave of things that are coming that are challenging the notion of who gets to make movies, how they're made, and then the last leg is still the most important and, and, and very difficult, which is like the discovery of that work in a sea of noise. And then also making sure that you can be sustainable in terms of the work that you're making. So I think that there's some really interesting uh, opportunities there. You know, I, um, for over a decade, I teach at Columbia University where I'm a professor of practice, kind of jointly appointed in film and theater. And about a decade ago, I started, founded, I'm a founding member of the Digital Storytelling Lab there where we explore new forms and functions of storytelling. Uh, and one of the things that we really are very interested in is this idea of how storytelling can kind of evolve. And I think, uh, yeah. you know, we started about a year and a half ago, a Web3 working group where we bring in all kinds of different people because we're interested to see how can decentralized technology, you know, like we look at it through a critical lens. We're skeptical of it at certain times. We interrogate it. We bring people from different industries together. Because we're looking and saying, maybe there's something here that we can take into higher education. And if we're able to kind of do that in an, in an innovative way, in a way that aids students and aids the mission of the school, uh, that's exciting. So if it can potentially aid higher ed, you know, what could it do for the entertainment industry too? So it's interesting to see this disruption. Well, it's kind of interesting because I remember back like sophomore year in college, however many years ago that was like reading Lev Manovich's theories of new media and, you know, that that laid out social media before social media and this sort of entire meme culture of you have something that you can represent numerically, you can break it into segments, you can run automation over it, you know, you can have this variability of transcoding. That That is TikTok, right? The, the purest expression of, of that is TikTok where you can have 
the audio represents something, the visual represents something, the, the format represents something, like all these components sort of integrate very nicely into that. I'm a pretty strong believer that all sorts of physical or ideological constraints shape what we build and create. And that's everything from different types of cities, the way they're architected will direct people's brains to think in slightly different ways, to what is possible to build on technology influences how people think of and use that technology more than the ideas that they necessarily bring to that technology. So I'm kind of curious, first off, if you agree at all with that. And so the second version would be, what have you found over the last year of running this Web3 storytelling lab that is different about the medium of Web3 versus any of these like previous digital mediums? Sure. Well, I, I, I agree on the, 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 like I'm fascinated by, and, and I think what you're, you're talking about in terms of the rise of social media and the, you know, the, the opportunity that sits there is really kind of this idea that anybody can be a storyteller, right? Like you're kind of blowing that wide open. Classically, what's existed is a hierarchy. You know, certain people were masterful storytellers. There's this embrace of the Artur theory, and that was very prescient for quite some time. And, and I think on one hand, you have like kind of the opening of something like where you were talking about the design or the urban planning of a city shaping the way that people might think or approach something. There's also these really wonderful design fails. Sometimes you can find them online where you see that somebody had the best laid plans and they're like, here's how you should use this path to walk through this park. And then you'll see that everybody just cuts through somewhere else because they don't want to take the longer way to get there. Right? Like, so there's this pushback in a sense where, um, people are, you know, it's kind of almost like Pandora's out of the box. You know, the moment they start to embrace kind of maker culture, the moment they start to embrace social media, we move from a paradigm of a one to many to a many to many kind of realm. So this potential of what Web3 offers, I think what's interesting, and you often hear it talked about in terms of the evolution of the web, you know, Web 1.0 was read and Web 2.0 read write, and then Web you know, 3.0 or Web3 promises this idea of owning, you know, like what does it mean to yeah. really own the pipes? What does it mean to own the data? What does it mean to have a real true one-to-one -one relationship with somebody who's interested in the work that you're making, or they are actually even co-creators of what that work is, which is a radical departure from how intellectual property currently works radical departure from how the entertainment industry currently works. But you see experimentation with that. Like if you look at the rise of like, uh, I can, I can take you back. Like when you had the rise of like peer to peer services, right. And uh, BitTorrent, I remember gave rise to like a project that was called wreck a movie where you would come in and you'd be part of the process of actually making the film from start all the way to finish. And it was a group of people that were kind of crowdfunding in and around. This is pre-Kickstarter, pre-Indiegogo, pre-all those things. There was another one uh, that was called um, uh, Lost Zombies, which was a crazy like crowdsourced zombie movie where people would go and they'd throw flash mobs and invade some Starbucks somewhere and they'd shoot on their cameras and then they'd give it back and it was like there was outbreaks everywhere, right? Like, so you, that, that's, that's a while ago, you know, and that's right at the dawn or the start of those crowdfunding platforms. So I think to your point, you know, there's certain times you kind of look and there's this idea of affordances and constraints of this technology. But then there's also totally. an opening where uh, sometimes the technology starts to become even more accessible to develop. So it's not necessarily requiring so much in terms of the engineering side or the, the knowledge of the coding aspects of it. Um, and it starts to open up these edge cases that you never expected because different people are coming in, you know? And so at the school, we, we really kind of believe that this next wave of innovation is gonna come from the arts. You know, I mean, if you go back and look historically, the arts have driven, uh, you know, different types of innovation throughout history. So we're very excited about, you know, where this sits and having this opportunity to, to leverage, you know, decentralized technology is, is very exciting at the moment. Yeah. I want to talk about NFTs in a minute, but you said something there, which I, I've heard a lot of people say, and I, I've probably also said myself at some point, which is sort of 
the Web3 paradigm is ownership. Mm -hmm. And I think when we're talking about infrastructure level work, like I own a layer one token, I'm an owner of the network, you know, a protocol, a software protocol, I think that that thesis is pretty strong and makes a lot of sense. I, I want to kind of tease it out a little bit more around the art side of things because most mass media art nowadays is not ownership, it's a licensing agreement. And most traditional sort of small volume, call it like your, you know, your paintings and photography, that is more of a direct ownership model. But even in the modern art world, we've seen like ownership rights and display rights get separated in like the, in like the painting world. And I'm kind of curious what the model is of Web3 ownership that doesn't end up being something where artists can't get paid anymore. Because if I, like, if I buy a piece of digital art and I'm, I'm an owner of that art, what I can do with it is almost unlimited from the perspective of like an IP standpoint. And sort of how does that mesh with like the way that the Web2 art world has been built up where uh, royalties and sort of residuals and, and all these sort of ongoing payments to artists are, are really only made possible because they, the person buying the material is actually licensing it. Well, it's interesting because I, I, in some ways, I, I think that there's, there's an element there that is a, is a fallacy. Like, and I think that the fallacy is that um, in, in theory, everything that you're saying is absolutely correct. If the accounting practices and, and the parties pay out as contractually obligated, right? Like, so um, some of the cases of what you're talking about is very true in terms of ad revenue that you see some, across some of the larger technology platforms. But things that involve licensing classically will have moments where you're always chasing the people that you've licensed the work to in order to get the reports, in order to get the fund, you know, the, whatever residuals mm -hmm. are meant to come back to you at certain levels, you know, like the larger you are, you have more people and, you know, it's, it's something meaning you have teams around you and you have legal representation and you're, you don't have a problem, you know, like famously, uh, William Shatner would always audit paramount every certain number of years because he knew there would be some discrepancy there right like so so i think yeah. that there's there's there on one side yes yeah it's, it's it's all dependent upon the contractual agreements that you have and if people live up to them i think in in terms of like the the friction point that you're talking about that i think is really fascinating is um you know this notion of what what is ownership you know like i'll give you an example some of the the work that we do at the lab and I do in my own practice is greatly informed by kind of the Fluxus art movement, which was a really wild art movement that arguably some people call an art network. Um, but I bring that up because it's influenced a lot of things that I do in my own practice and it's influenced what we do at the lab. So I wanted to mention sometimes what we experiment with the lab is we decouple ourselves from intellectual property by doing experiments with public domain work. So we did this crazy thing that was like Sherlock Holmes and the Internet of Things, kind of combined it together and brought together over 2,600 collaborators from 60 different countries. And they self-organized 180 events around the world. And they all made, it was kind of like we created a creative system that allowed them to go off and do all kinds of amazing things, right? You know, and, and they created stories and they built street games and they made, you know, like augmented reality apps and VR experiences and escape rooms. And and it was amazing. Right. And it was all, uh, you know, kind of this idea of like, OK, how do we unleash this? So it was like an right. open kind of sandbox of experimentation in terms of the way that you could start to play with narrative and the way that you could engage with people. And so. I think in some ways, intellectual property has to evolve. You know, the way that we keep like kicking it further down the road, 75 years, you know, blah, blah, you know, hold so tightly. Culture is shaped by what it builds upon, you know, and the ability to kind of open up some of that and the commons and the idea of the commons is, is really important. So I, I kind of look at it, I guess, and, and I think, what are some uh, open systems that we could potentially do? You know, like what might that look like? It's not to say that people can't have intellectual property. I'm not stepping all over that. I'm just offering an alternate viewpoint. Yeah. So 
in another life, in another world, I worked on immersive theater productions in, in New York City back in like 2010 and 11. One of those was Sleep No More, the installation and creation process for that. But one of the things we were really trying to do at the time was figure out how you could do a decentralized show that would take place in multiple countries that then would have sort of some common layer of the internet. And the technology just wasn't there at the time. But it, it's very cool to see that something that you guys have now been able to sort of take and build and actually like the technology exists that you can do that now. As we go sort of through this process, I'm really curious to hear a little bit about uh, where there's smoke and sort of the impetus of that project and how that sort of ties into some of this like work you've been doing. Sure. Well, where there's smoke is a really, it's probably the most personal vulnerable work I've ever made. It took a, I'd say it was in process for like 17 years. And that was basically because of it was so personal, right? Like, so I, I grew up in a firefighting household. My dad was a volunteer firefighter, amateur fire scene photographer. That That's where I learned photography. You know, at a young age, I was kind of racing off with my dad to photograph fires. You know, I had my first camera, interchangeable lenses when I was in third grade. Well, when I was a kid, we had two devastating fires that intersected with our lives. One where we were on vacation and our van erupted in flames with us in it and we got out and everything was safe. You know, we were all fine. And then the second was 11 months later, our house burned to the ground. And I don't know if it was because I was raised, you know, my dad turned me on to like film noir and mysteries and all these different things that for some reason, I, I always wondered, did my dad have anything to do with these fires, which is really like a crazy mm. leap. But there were all kinds of reasons that I thought that and where their smoke starts to examine some of that in, 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 in the makeup. But the piece really kind of takes hold. And what made it actually happen was that when my dad was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, he invited me to come interview him and said that I could ask him anything that I wanted. So up for, uh, you know, the last year of his life, I would sit down with him and we would have, I, I, you know, I interviewed him for about 15 hours over a period of time and I could ask him anything. And all these skeletons started to emerge from the closet and the piece really kind of started to evolve. And at that time early on, you know, where you were just mentioning immersive work, I'm, I'm very interested in immersive uh, as, a, as a form for storytelling, you know, the, the, the transformative potential of it, the power that it has, and uh, the way in which, you know, IRL can mix with like virtual is really exciting. So what I ended up doing was, you know, I could have made it as a television limited series, I could have done it as a feature film, I've done all that work before, you know, but I decided I wanted to do this in a different way. I wanted to challenge the notion of how you could experience this world. And so with that, I started thinking, well, what form can this take, right? And a lot of my work is always like this. It's, it's like, I have to describe the things that it isn't in order for you to understand what it is. So it's kind yeah. of like, it's a documentary, but it's not linear. It's a, an immersive theater piece, but there's no actors. It's an escape room, but there's no escape. Right. This latest incarnation, which is at Art Yard, which is in Frenchtown, New Jersey, uh, about an hour or so outside New York. It's only a few miles from where my dad was a firefighter. And I went to them and I said, hey, I want to incubate this. You're an analog organization. I have uh, the work that I do embraces decentralized technology, embraces emerging, you know, emerging technology. Let's incubate this here and see what it's like. And so they got excited and they uh, commissioned the work and then I found uh, support from the Solana Foundation for some of it. And then I sold some NFTs to offset the cost of doing it and ended up creating this uh, immersive experience where you go and you are given a flashlight, you pick up the flashlight, you start moving with it and you wear headphones. And uh, we use, uh, we subverted and used some really cool tech that's normally used in tracking uh, products and factories and we it's called uh, elicos the company and what we did is we built a geofence in and around this three thousand square foot installation that allows us to know where you are at any point as you move and using microcontrollers uh we do like real-time mixing on that flashlight so the whole piece is generative your score yeah the stories 
everything that you're engaging with is generative. And we're collecting data as you move throughout the whole experience. And so you're guided kind of in with this set of instructions from this head, this flashlight. It's kind of magical. It's enchanted. It's playing kind of music. It's guiding you. And then you find yourself in this darkened kind of black box, almost like theater kind of space. But there are all these tables and there's all this these things on it. And so all of a sudden you start excavating. And based upon what you're doing in the space, there's conditionals that determine what happens to the story. And so the story is different for everyone. People contribute things within it. There's you know various prompts back to some of that fluxus element that I mentioned. And people add to it. So it's kind of a living, breathing kind of documentary, immersive piece that grows every time, you know? And so when I go up there, I can see like it's constantly changing, constantly evolving. And then the last part I'll mention is that we have a plotter, an axie draw that sits at the front that draws like A1 size paper, like movie poster size. Yeah. It's, a, it's a large one. We take uh, different data that's being captured, mainly pathway data at this point. Um, but when you come out, you can see all the lines and they represent the the path that somebody took, the density of where they were. And then we're doing some really cool generative work with that. Uh, we'll be mm. doing a drop with Code Canvas around that uh, later this uh, year. And that to me is like the idea that I go into an exhibition and it's growing, it's generative, it's different for everybody that goes through it. And it's making more art as it continues. Is that, that's yeah. like super exciting to me. So what's the sort of the blockchain and NFT tie-in for you for this? Because th there's parts of this project that feel like it's very, very new, very forward, very like AI generative experience. But like it, what in your mind was like critical about there being the Web3 component there? Sure. Well, I'd say right now it's been blockchain adjacent, right? And something that I'm working with the Solana Foundation around is making it blockchain integrated. So it has NFTs in and around it involved in it, right? Like I did uh, kind of, I initially started and I was doing a campaign with form function, but unfortunately form function folded. And so I had done a lot of work around that and, and we had a kind of a false start with that because, you know, they shuttered, but I, I was doing these kind of, I'll, I'll say in quotes, traditional NFTs that were one of ones of like my my dad's photographs, because after he died, I found thousands and thousands of these amazing 35 millimeter slides of things in various yeah. states of burning, right? So I, I was taking some of those, blowing them up and doing like one of ones with those. And then I'm a glitch artist. I go by culture hacker, you know, in, in the ecosystem. And I would take them and I would make glitch pieces. I would kind of destroy them and burn them with pixels, right? In a really kind of cool way. And so I did those as one of ones and limited editions. And then I have been working on doing a, a drop that takes 35 millimeter slides and uses a burn mechanic. So when you burn it, you get the slide of a fire. And if you collect a certain number, then your name and that certain number of those slides will be put into a permanent collection. Um, so kind of playing with that idea of, you know, the ledger as a way to archive something but then tying it to an IRL component of, you know, archiving the actual work. And then the last part is what we've been developing around Code Canvas, which is taking the data from the piece. Now, moving forward, what uh, we're talking about is a fully integrated path where the ticketing, you know, kind of embracing like kind of this idea of POAP, you know, this idea that like, okay, I could, I could come in, I could ticket, I could gain, you know, I could get some type of an NFT that would evolve over time. Maybe it it uh, disappears or fades like the way a memory does. You know, it would kind of leverage an aesthetic that was related to the piece. But as I kind of made my way in, uh, playing with, you know, I've been talking to some of the folks from the Boots Protocol, Raindrops, you know, talking about proximity mints and talking about the idea of traits because there's a really cool moment in the piece where people go through a visualization exercise and they draw something that they would save from a fire, right? Hmm. So the installation literally has like now probably close to 2000 drawings of different items that people chose to save. So the idea of being able to be there with a flashlight, put something down, well, we do a lot of hardware 
development. So like we could have something that you push the the card into and it scans the front and the back of it, you know, and then you could right. do something with the yeah. flashlight where you determine like, oh, I want to, I want to commit this to the memory ledger, right? Or whatever it is, right? Like, and you could do a proximity min. And then the idea that we'll take some of the generative work that we're doing now out to code canvas and some of those scans, and we'll bring them back into the installation through screens, right? So now all of a sudden I'm seeing, you know, more of the generative element coming back into the actual installation. And then I'm doing uh, in, in a couple of weeks at Lincoln Center, and then I'll do it again. We're doing these live performances around the piece where we're doing live mints with audiences. So I'm kind of working my development path. I'm not, I'm not a developer in the blockchain. We do a lot with like hardware, a lot with IoT, a lot with AI. Um, yeah. And so it's been really cool to kind of connect with the Solana Foundation and the, and the awesome development community that exists within in the ecosystem and to be able to kind of bring these weird edge cases into what is going on in the ecosystem and say, hey, how can we, how can we do this? I think that there could be some use cases here that could be beneficial not only to this project, but to a whole bunch of other, you know, folks who are doing stuff in the arts or in, you know, other, uh, other industries too. Yeah. I, I think a lot of times people sort of look at something new and they expect like a straight arrow projection to say like, oh, well, there's this immersive show and like it's got NFTs and it's got some blockchain integration. And, you know, it's very easy to look at that and just sort of be like, well, why does this need blockchain? And the answer is like, it doesn't yet. But it also doesn't need that plotter you were describing, and it doesn't need the positioning system, and it doesn't need, like, the core idea is not one that is grounded in the technology, it's grounded in the art you're trying to create. And the uses of any form of technology is always additive to that experience. It's not, like, the core of that experience. I think that's something that a lot of folks who come at it from the technology standpoint sort of often get wrong, is that, like, at the end of the day, you're creating art and you're using these technologies because they help you do that. You're not creating the art for the technology. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's a big thing that uh, I do in my practice. There's a theory called MDA that you use to analyze games and design games. And that it's, M stands for mechanics, D stands for dynamics, and A stands for aesthetics. And when you're kind of making a game, you go a different way than when you're playing the game. Uh, and yeah. uh, through it, right? And, but the idea is the mechanics is kind of the rules for what what are needed to play the game. The, the dynamics or the behavior or the play itself and the aesthetics is what you feel. So I'll often think about what somebody thinking, feeling, and doing as they're going through these immersive installations. And I'll think about an aesthetic, you know, where their smoke has an aesthetic. It's kind of like, it's this idea of right. being uh, clouded by grief in a certain respect, right? Like it's this idea of moving through a space where my dad and I's story is a springboard for people to think about their own life, their own loss, their own memory, right? So now it yeah. makes sense, like in terms of like, oh, well, how could I use decentralized technologies to build upon what this immersive experience is? If I already have a geofence and if I'm allowing people to move through, if memory is malleable, you know, there's something really interesting that I can do there that relates very much to what you could do with an NFT or a digital asset. And so in this case, it's a lot of people will come out of it and the responses are, are phenomenal because people will spend upwards of 30 minutes or more inside this exhibition, right? And I see a demographic that goes from like 14, 15 year olds all the way up to senior citizens and everything in between. And I'm seeing like a repeat uh, people coming back again because they realize when they leave and they talk to their friends, kind of that sleep no more, the magic of sleep no more, which is like, oh, I might get a one-on-one -on -one with somebody or I get separated from my friends and I end up kind of going all over. And the best part of that show is when you're at a diner afterwards or grabbing drinks and you're talking about what happened to you. It's like being in an amazing like music festival or something. You all got separated and you were at different stages or whatever you know, there's this element in where there's smoke where people come out and they start talking about the stories and somebody's like, I didn't hear that. And they're like, I heard this other one. And they're like, what, what's that story? I didn't know that. What, what? And they start talking to each other. Right. And it's about this connection. It's kind of creating ironically something that's a, 
disappeared or, or disappeared for a period of time with like binge watching around television, right? You yeah. Know, now it's starting to come back and there are a number of those streamers are actually going back to, you know, like if you wanted to see succession, you had to wait until it aired, right? Like you couldn't, you couldn't binge the whole thing because it removed the social dynamic of what it was, you know? And so there's something really interesting because decentralized technologies are also really, there's a real strong social component to them. You know, it's, it's funny to hear you kind of talk about it in this way, because it seems like a lot of mass market storytelling is getting much flatter than it used to be. Um, not just the rehashing of let's take a movie from 20 years ago and let's remake it, or the sort of never ending drip of comic book movies that are coming out that are all basically formulaically the same, or even some of the, the work around, you know, what sort of net new stories and films are getting created, whether it's turning Barbie into a film or whether it's turning, you know, let, let's make another movie about someone doing good things in World War II, right? Like the, 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 the basis of stories feels like it's, it's flattening. And there's an interesting parallel in the NFT space because like, you know, Hello Kitty as a brand is an $80 billion brand. And there's no plot there. There's no Board Ape Yacht Club plot. There's no D-Gen Ape Academy. Well, there's a small one, but there really isn't like a plot. These, these are almost more like symbolic affiliation stories than they are traditional stories. Or if they're stories, they're like the, the world of NFTs right now is very thin on storytelling. And I'm kind of curious as you sort of describe, you know, like the stuff you're talking about is like very interesting to me, like a an experience and a story where not everyone gets to experience it. And you have this sort of social consensus that comes together on the end and figure out what actually happened. Like that feels like a kind of story that we're not telling as a society anymore. And I'm kind of curious to hear you think about what the future of sort of Web3 storytelling and Web3, you know, basically creative pursuits can be like from a technology perspective, we know these things can be really integrated. We know that we can have, you know, 10,000 PFP drops and each one of those has its own story. And there's this like magic meta story that ends up getting built together. But we sort of see culture, at least in the United States, kind of building away from that. How do you think those two things intersect? Do they just grow in parallel? Does this mean that the, the type of work you're talking about with, with generative materials will sort of never be quite as mainstream as your sort of staple Marvel DC comic movie? Or what does that future look like for you? Well, I think it's interesting because some of what I'm talking about is kind of this level of personalization within storytelling, which is 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 kind yeah. of interesting. And in, in the way in which like with where there's smoke, for instance, I experience one thing and somebody experiences something totally different, right? But uh, do you think people want that? I think like in, some people do, but so, yeah. So, yeah, I think some people do in certain respects. I, I think, I don't know if you've seen the new Unity replica demo, uh, where literally you're in a city and you can walk up to any NPC and you can talk to them, right? Like you can, hmm. you can literally have a conversation, right? It's all AI, and AI enabled. And so I can walk up and I've seen a variety of demos where somebody's like, I don't, what's up with your hair? And then they they start having a conversation with the NPC and he's like, I just got my hair cut, you know, and they're going back and forth. Yeah. You know, like there's this there's this whole maker culture, you know, like if if I look at Let's Play videos, if I look at the rise of social media, if I look at the way that a lot of people think that they're, you know, they feel that they're storytellers, they're telling stories on a regular basis. We're all storytellers. It's in us. Right. It's just a matter of like some people have been elevated or are masterful storytellers. Well, while others maybe don't identify as being a storyteller or don't know or haven't evolved necessarily in, as a storyteller, right? Like, so, so I think on, on one hand, you know, I could see the rise of personalization within storytelling. And I could see that driving a variety of different ways that people are interacting with stories or the, the potential for how they could participate in what those stories were. Uh, and then sharing, I, I think you'll start to see a, a crazy kind of remix culture that'll come around with like generative AI. And this is like something they're trying to figure out is like, well, what does it mean when we start to use deep fakes and we take 
license different celebrities. And then what if I put myself in there into a diehard and I'm one of the characters and I decide I want to be, you know, the arch villain in that thing, or I put my friend in there and then we sample ourselves. And all of a sudden you're going to have like these super cuts of like different scenes and it'll become totally schizophrenic, but it points to, you know, using it's, it's like meme culture, right? Like what I just described there. But on the other side of that is the potential of a whole new wave of storytellers and different voices kind of emerging and being able to tell whether it's traditional stories that are kind of like, okay, I crafted this and you can, you can explore, be part of certain elements of what it is up on the other end of the spectrum. Like you're actively co-creating this thing or, you know, for others. And then they're following you through it, you know, like that idea of, you know, here's a a remix of Die Hard that I did. All of that is like unknown. It's unknown in terms of the IP around it. It's unknown in terms of like who's making it. It's unknown in terms of what technologies are going to power it. It's unknown in what studios will still exist. It's unknown in terms of like what new technology opportunities there will be in terms of like some of the stuff that's going on with decentralization. I'm so into the decentralization thing because I think years and years ago I was in Wired Magazine and they did a piece and I was talking about the distribution of the last broadcast and I was talking about the democratization of that distribution, you know, and it took 20 some odd years for the protocol that we were developing at that time and what we were experimenting with to be the way that films are delivered now, right? So that was a long progression. But with right. some of these generative tools, it's accelerating, right? It's not a 20-year window. It's like six months, nine months. You yeah. know, we've seen it a lot I, within Web3, you know? Yeah, I guess it's just like, as I look at like, what are forms of decentralized community-owned storytelling today? And I think the biggest and most successful one by far is probably QAnon which is like a very new media decentralized storytelling where anyone can contribute their own narrative. And if the group of people that are deep in that conspiracy theory think that your story is great, it's added to the canon for lack of a better term. But like that also obviously creates some very serious problems. I mean, QAnon is not something to joke about from that perspective. And so to me, this is really like interesting where we look at like these intersections of the acknowledgement that there is no such thing as universal truth and that we finally come to accept that as a society that you can't ever know something truly as what actually happened. But then that that storytelling component goes right into, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to reconceive of the world in this era where now you know, there's conspiracy theories everywhere. There's a global cabal that, you know, all the QAnon stuff that we all know and let's call it love. I guess that's kind of the one of the questions I have on the future of art and the future of these components. There, There's a level in which AI is letting go of the creation process. And it's saying, I have a bunch of parameters I want to put in and something else creates a lot of that work. And decentralized storytelling, it it feels reminiscently similar where like an author of a novel is largely in control of the material that they're producing. Now, people may not like the book, they may not read the book, but like it is that author's work. And when we get into this sort of decentralized storytelling component, the who and what is the author becomes a much more murkier subject. Now, you can argue that like artists never actually have control of their work. It's all socially constructed ideas that no no humans ever actually come up with an original piece of art or original idea ever. But like that feels a little too extreme for me to be like a useful level of analysis here. How do you think about that work where artists truly have to let go of material when it becomes something that's community owned as opposed to something that they've like put out in the world as almost like a, a one time transaction? Like you have lost control to some extent intentionally of where there's smoke by having it be generative. Even though you've created all of the the rules for the environment, who knows how that's going to grow into the future? Yeah, well, I think a couple different things. I mean, I think I came out of making alternate reality games. Alternate reality games were a big, you could, you could say that 
QAnon is a huge alternate reality game, right? Like it's like it's yes. it's crazy in, in terms of what it is. And we we had done a project that was all about misinformation and deception uh, at the lab that was called Project Immerse, and you found yourself in this environment, and the narrative conceit was that somebody's dumping all this data to you. You're not sure who it is or what it means, but you work with other people to make sense of it. And it was all about apathenia, right? Like how we look for patterns yeah. in things in order to make meaning and in order to shape the stories that we use and the narrative that we use to explain our lives and how we fit into the world, right? So I think that those narratives are incredibly powerful and misinformation and deception is really a, a major, major issue uh, you know, that uh, is very complex, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to take all kinds of policy issues, regulatory issues, and it's something that's very challenging. When I think about storytelling, you know, I think about this idea of if we're all storytellers, there's an element of like, I think with where there's smoke, I'm looking at the new forms and functions of storytelling. And I want to kind of dig into that because I think it gets towards what you're talking about, right? Like, so at the lab, yeah. we think about forms as emergent technology, you know, um, could be AI, could be the internet of things, could be augmented reality, so forth and so on, decentralized technology. And then the functions are story for learning, story for healing, story for mo mobilization and policy change, story for entertainment, right? And a lot of when I talk to somebody, as I mentioned earlier, trying to define what, where their smoke is, you know, we have a relationship with entertainment that is ingrained in us. I sit down in my living room, I turn on the TV, I know what to expect. I go to a movie theater, I know what to expect, right? That, that, that's had, you know, over a century in terms of film, time to be incubated, to be figured out. Like when somebody, when they first went into theaters, when they saw the train coming at the camera, they got up and they ran out of the, the room, right? Like they ran out of the yeah. theater itself because they thought the train was literally coming in. How crazy is that? And then there was no, you know, they had to develop the language of cross-cutting and masters and wide shots and close-ups and over the shoulder, all that. That all came, right? Like that grammar emerged. Where we sit now is there are, it's kind of, it's that's why it's so important to kind of borrow from things from the past in, in my sense, right? Like art movements represent human condition. The movement might change, you know, from the futurists and the teens to Bauhaus to, you know, happenings, fluxes, pop art and so forth and so on. There are all these hmm. different interpretations of the human condition, whether they're absurd, whether they're surreal, whether they're really, you know, rooted in activism, politics but there's human condition there. Right. And, and I think right now, you know, like I uh, often talk about Marshall McLuhan in the classes that I teach in particular, I love this one quote of, you know, like we kind of march into the future and we shape our business models through the rear view mirror, right? Like this idea that in order yeah. sometimes grasping something in the future is really difficult unless we're comparing it to something that's come before it. So in that sense, we constantly have this friction between like, who owns this? Who gets to tell this? You know, what is a story? Does a story have to be like three hours like Oppenheimer? Or, you know, is a story something that unfolds in like 60 seconds on TikTok? Like what, where, you know, the definition of it is all murky and blurry and, and who gets to be the author is murky and blurry. All of that is a challenge. But if we look, I would say, and I'm not saying this about where there's smoke necessarily. I, I'm just saying new forms will emerge and some of the great works of the 21st century will come from these new forms, right? We just don't know what they are yet, right? So it's kind of, it's yeah. kind of, it offers up all these new ways to kind of think about human connection because at the core of it, storytelling is around connection. Yeah. I think what's fascinating is if you look at, some of the stuff, like when I came into NFTs a number of years ago, it came through, came through like Clubhouse. Even though I had seen CryptoKitties, I had written about it, you know, like it was yep. really that moment where it was like, there was something that was percolating, but it was through human connection, people craving to talk to others that gave rise to this use case that probably a lot of people in the decentralized space maybe took them a bit by surprise. You know, did, was that going to be the first thing that really popped out of the ecosystem, NFTs? You know, like, yeah. so for art, 
you know, I don't know. I, I, I guess, you know, I think it's awesome. But so I guess what I'm getting at is there's a lot to the question that you asked in terms of the points and pokes at what is the future of these forms? What could they be? And who gets to be the author of them? And what are they meant to do? I think ultimately, if we just lean into the human experience, we look at the history of what has happened before, we kind of look at where we are in the present and then kind of extrapolate and embrace, you know, speculative design and things that you can gain from futures thinking, you can start to yeah. see some of the breadcrumbs of where we might be headed, you know, and then it's kind of extrapolating kind of Frankenstein. It's like a Frankenstein's monster, man. It's going to be messy right. at first, right? It's going to, it's going to have like too many limbs. It's, you know, it's not going to be able to speak. It's going to be grunting all the time, you know, but it's going to be craving yeah. human connection, right? Because what is that novel telling us? It's over 200 years old. It's like sometimes something that we create can get outside of our control. Also, the core of that novel is really about isolation and connection. It's about what it means to be truly human. And that's what makes right. art so powerful. You know, it's interesting that the, the Frankenstein's monster analogy, I think, is, is kind of spot on. And I, I actually feel that way about a lot of modern culture, that it is everything from the fact that you can go anywhere in the world and you can find the coffee shops that look exactly identical. There is this sort of Frankenstein's monster of like, global culture that's been built and like it's funny because like i i worry about that a little bit in the future of ai powered art not that ai is not going to be a strong tool or, or they sort of blockchain tools as a way of collaboration aren't going to be really strong and powerful tools i think it's hard to do good original work without isolation and the the more that we have integrated technologies integrated storytelling integrated communities you either get these sort of like very much like QAnon, like down the rabbit hole we're all in this cult together or you get this like sort of softening of everything like a flattening of of the the idea space that's possible and i hope i'm wrong on that i hope we get the opposite and we actually get this like 10 million frankenstein monsters that all look different and all have these sort of different components in them and we sort of see this like great expanse of what's possible. I don't know. I, I err on I, the Part side. of me is worried. I, I, maybe I'm optimistic, right? Like uh, there's a part of me that th feels like we have certain sparks in our, you know, like a flame burns. Like when we're a child, we're like super playful and then society yeah. beats, it, it beats it out of us, right? Like it dims it down. But I think that there's something inherently about being able to embrace the arts and realize that you can make a creative expression. Like a lot of my work, for instance, spans years to make, like the large scale stuff that I do, the installations that I do. Even when I'm doing a film or a television series or whatever, it takes a long time. One of the things that I did, and, and I was kind of in, inspired, you know, because I had filed like Beeple's every day for a, a while and, you know, it would pop up in my Instagram feed. I thought, oh, you know what? I'm going to try to do that because I'm, I'm going to see if I can make a piece every day because I do these long form works. You know, I want to see if I can do some stuff with code. I want to see if I can make some glitch art. I want to see if I can make something every day. And so I started, I tried in 2019, failed after a couple of days, just like miserable failure. It's hard. And then I, I did it in 2020. I got all the way up to the pandemic. And then you would have thought I had a plenty of time, but then I had other things on my mind. And I, I wasn't able to do it. But in 2021, I start making a piece and I'm closing in on a thousand days now, right? And I was initially just putting them up on Instagram, you know, very web 2.0. And I uh, started to become really interested in what was going on with like NFTs. And I ended up stumbling upon uh, Hicket Nunk. And I was an early, very early into that community. And what I loved about Hicket Nunk was um, it reminded me of Web 1.0. The interface was really mm. confusing. There was no algorithm. There was no curation. There was crazy. I was like, did I do that right? Where did it go? What's happening? Did it connect <laughs> to the wallet? There was all kinds of chaos around it that just made it so amazing because it created social chatter in and around what was happening. It was like it, the development of it was so raw. It was so alpha. It was so out there. 
right, in a really cool way. And people started recognizing it, saying, wow, this is different than the other things that I'm seeing in the space. Yeah. And artists just started pouring in from all over the world. And that I often tell, well, I tell my students this, I tell other people that like, if you want to understand or study decentralization, Hikat Nook is an amazing use case story for it because, you know, Raphael, single developer out of Brazil, funded by the Tezos organization uh, or granted initially, brings a Southern economy model up with him, right? And, you know, a different type of a creative economy model. It starts to become really successful. You know, I think it did over 50 million in sales in like nine months. It was insane. It burned so bright before it imploded. But it struggles community-wise with like, as it starts to create resources for people, the demands that are there in terms of what people want start to start to strain things, right? Everybody has different demands because people are leaving their jobs. They're going and they're making art full time now. And now they want this feature. They want this, this, da, da, da. There were these amazing community hackathons, all these wonderful events that people were doing, uh, you know, like swapping art, all kinds of really cool fundraisers. And then it just like implodes in like spectacular fashion, you know, like, and, and, and because it's open source, the moment it, it goes dead within hours, it's all, you know, I can mint one place and it's like a Hydra. It's like, it's mirrored yeah. everywhere. And you're like, wow, that's wild. That's decentralization. You know, like, you're like, holy shit, that's crazy. You know? And so there, there was a lot there because decentralization is hard. Historically, it's very difficult, you know? And so, but it was really wild in terms of that art project. It is an art project. When I look at it, it just, you know, it's an amazing performance piece that involves, uh, you know, over 40 some thousand artists around the world. And, you know, it, it radically shifted people's lives. And, and it, was, it was very interesting. And then later, soon around that summer before it imploded, I started getting into the, the Solana ecosystem, you know, which I was super excited about because I saw some of the, the community aspects that I had identified with Hikat Nunk that I was so drawn to. And in fact, I started a, a really cool zine. It's called Dam. It's a decentralized art magazine. And we get together the beginning of every month and have a prompt and people make work. And then we use a hashtag and we find their work. And then we create a PDF of the zine that's a directory to all the artists, but it's cross chain, you know, so people are minting on any chain. And we've yeah. done uh, 14 issues of it, worked with over a thousand artists who have made like 1300 pieces. And we've collected like 600 or so pieces for the damn vault. But uh, I do that with Lowbrow Native, who's in the ecosystem within Solana. We co-founded it together. But like that idea of community, and, and that's what you know I got excited about within the Solana ecosystem in particular. I got excited because I identified something that I had felt and gone through previously that I was like, that's where it was the most electric. That was where it was totally exciting. So I think... This goes back to a question previously. I think it's all about use cases. I think if people can see different wild outliers and experiments and things that are breaking from the norm, it's weird to say there's a norm around this category, but there is certain, there are certain norms yeah. that have developed, right? And certain ways that people do things and the methods, because there's a lot of people kind of just chasing what somebody else has done. I say, you know, like full on embrace the, the R and D opportunities of the moment that we find ourselves in full on embrace the, the potential to make that human connection to experiment. Uh, because I've been kicking around for a while since web 1.0 and I'm, I've never been more excited than the moment that we find ourselves in now, because I can see that Frankenstein monster. I can see all those pieces. I'm like, Victor, man, I'm in the lab. I'm trying to assemble it all. You know, it's like, there's a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this. Um, and that, you know, I tell my students when they come into class, because a lot of times the narrative around the category is very negative. You know, so a lot of my students are like, no, I don't want to know anything about this. It's This is what it is. But I tell yeah. the story of my personal journey through it. And I tell the story of what's really interesting about it. And I talk about philosophically the potential of it. I talk about what it means in relation to previous art movements. I talk about what it could mean for them in terms of their own sustainability, you know, and, and, and I, I kind of come at it from a different perspective because at surface level, if you just read the media around it, 
or if you just look at some of the trending things in marketplaces, a lot of my students will be like, well, that that's cool, but it's not for me. You know what I mean? And yeah. I think what this space needs is things that are on boards to help more people understand the creative potential of what it is. So where there's smoke, to me, it's not an add-on that it becomes blockchain integrated. It's, it's the next logical evolution of this iterative project. And, it, and I think it's something that's critically needed in an ecosystem to welcome more people in through something that they had a personal connection to, something that allowed them to experiment with the technology in a way that was emotionally resonant, right? That it was a story that allowed them to transport themselves somewhere else. So I think it's experimentation is what I'm hopeful for. So I'm not, I, you know, back to what you said, you know, where it might go. I'm, I'm optimistic. I think if more people experiment, we'll see those potential possibilities and, and use cases. Well, I think that's a great place to lead this for today. Uh, Lance, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Um, appreciate it. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.